are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Ethereal, cross-cultural, mellifluous. Rina Esmel works between the worlds of Indian and Western classical music and brings communities together through the creation of equitable musical spaces. A graduate of Juilliard and Yale School of Music, Rina has worked with the Kronos Quartet, Imani Winds, and Albany Symphony, and her music has been performed around the world. Rina was a 2011 Fulbright grantee to India, and her doctoral thesis explored the methods and challenges of collaborative process between Hindustani and Western musicians. She is also the composer-in-residence with Street Symphony, where she works with communities experiencing homelessness and incarceration in Los Angeles. So, uh, first of all, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Oh my gosh, it's great to see your face. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to start with your, uh, start out with your short work for SSA Choir called Tutorana. Yeah. And you also have versions of this for uh, SATB Choir and Brass Quintet. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of transcriptions these days because Mm -hmm. um, I feel like um, there are different groups that want to engage with my music. And, um, you know, I didn't have a brass quintet before. And um, uh, there was a friend of mine who was doing a project um, with uh, getting like various small brass quintets. And and I thought, you know, I don't have the time to write an original piece, but, you know, this kind of would transfer really nicely. So, you know, yeah, it's it's amazing how um, the music actually actually becomes something really different when it's for a different ensemble and it kind of allows sure. you to explore, you know, in your own way what that that piece will be. So, yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell us the story behind the title because I I think it's quite interesting what you've done. Yeah, so basically the title and and there's a title a story behind the title and then an addendum to that, which is that um there um the tutorana is made up of these two words. The word tutti, um, which is the Italian word for together, everyone together, and then tarana, which is a kind of an Indian classical form. And so this Indian classical form is like the equivalent of what a scat would be in jazz. So mm-hmm. they're all kind of syllables that are onomatopoeic syllables um that the the piece would kind of be this this ending kind of rager this like this this piece that would show off your vocal dexterity um but in indian classical music um mostly everything is a solo form and it's always a soloist a leader and then an accompanist um and so you would never have an ensemble singing a tarana. So for me, I wanted to kind of explore what a tarana would be in an ensemble setting. Um, so that's, that's what the piece is. And that's what, what, um, I wrote it to be. Um, specifically because, you know, a lot of my music, unlike, um, you know, me as a person, I'm like kind of, kind of bubbly and kind of, you know, I speak very fast and stuff, but my music (laughs) is all very slow and, um, ethereal. And so Mm -hmm. this commissioner had specifically requested like, uh, a really fast, fast kind of closer type of piece. And, um, so I thought, okay, let me explore a fast Indian form. So, so that, that was the title of the piece. And that was, um, what I, I intended when I titled it that way in 2015, but then it was really crazy because I mean, obviously so much has happened in our world since then. And, um, Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Uh, so much, so much, it feels like a whole different world. And, um, and funnily like that title had never quite sat right with me. I would always refer to it 
it as like the women's choir piece because that was the one that had you know, that was the first version of it and i always thought uh-huh. the word the term didn't really make sense to me so then i was actually on um the train on the way to new haven to um defend my doctorate this was in october and this piece was being performed um on my doctoral recital and i was looking at the title and i realized that um the the um founder of the me too movement um was this wonderful woman named Tarana Burke and if you if you look at the title of the piece the title of the piece literally means we are all Tarana so mm-hmm. i was like oh my gosh this suddenly has this new meaning which in a way to have you know so many women singing this women's choir piece that's called we are all Tarana is a, a completely different meaning than i had intended but that that i think also you know is significant to me yeah, definitely, definitely significant. Um, I want to circle back kind of to the the classical form that you know you you are taking this from the tarana. Um, what would accompany a vocalist performing a tarana? So basically, it would any uh, Indian classical vocal performance will be minimally um, a singer, um, a tabla player, so an Indian uh, drum, and then you would have a um, some kind of drone in there. And so, you know, okay. if worse comes to worse, there would be a drone that's like, you know, all of our iPhones have this app on it that makes a drone that can kind of work. <laughs> um, and it's totally a thing that 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 we use sometimes. Really? But wow. yeah, okay. it's there's an app called iTabla, which literally is like an industry standard that people will use even in performances to supplement this instrument that's called a tanpura, which looks a little bit like a sitar, but it's just four strings and someone's job uh-huh. is to kind of pluck those strings. So basically, you know, the Indian vocalist would have complete control over what happens in the performance. It's not like a sonata, you know, where you think of sometimes the pianist leads, sometimes the violinist leads or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's really the vocalist leading the entire time because if you're improvising, you know, someone has to be the person calling the shots in there if you're if you're not even improvising within a a form that's completely set so um so that's how it would sound um in in just indian classical voice um but this is obviously very different so you'll see i mean there is one melody that goes through it and it gets passed off but then there's also some kind of counterpoint around it as well and different people obviously different harmonies going on and stuff too yeah can you talk about i mean i i think that you know, the listeners will be able to hear a clear connection to um, something that sounds Indian, yeah. you know, so basically something that is using a scale or in this case, is it a is it a raga? Yeah, it is. It's actually the rag called Jog. And one of the things I love about Jog, um, especially in the context, context of Western music, is that it has both a major and minor third. And so for us, okay. you know, I mean, the third is, is really defines the two polar, uh, scales that we have. The major and minor is completely defined by the third. And so, um, so when you have a scale that incorporates both the major and minor third, it's, it's surprising to Indian ears, but it's even more surprising, I think, to Western ears that are so mm-hmm. set in that that way um so so you'll find that when it comes down the scale it'll come to the lower third and when it maybe goes up to the top it'll it'll end up on the oh sorry it'll come down to the higher third and go up to the lower third so yeah oh that's interesting yeah, yeah. and then you were able to take that and you know provide kind of a western context yeah yeah, to me, the Western context is just the adding of harmonies and the adding of, Harmony. you know, yeah. and the adding of like, um, because you can control things so tightly in a Western setting, you can, you can, um, 
you can kind of uh, get the piece to go in ways that it wouldn't necessarily go if you were improvising. And so, sure. you know, one of those things is that in an Indian um, setting, there would be a rhythmic cycle. So however complex that rhythmic cycle is or however it works, um, that rhythmic cycle would stay consistent through the piece. Whereas for me, I mean, if you look at the score of this thing, it changes um, uh uh, time signatures all the time just because I can actually use those rhythms as like units and then make them into these different time signatures so even for an Indian musician it's not like an Indian musician would be able to just jump in and perform this particular tarana because it's just not right. designed for that yeah 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 because you don't have the tala exactly yeah um, so who was the commissioning ensemble and how did you get connected with them so um, the the person who commissioned it initially was um, a choral conductor by the name of Lindsay Pope. Um, and at that time, she was uh, the director of the choir at um, Mount Holyoke. And so they're, you know, the oldest women's college in the U.S. And so, um, you know, they brought me in and actually it started this really beautiful relationship between me and Lindsay. And um, Lindsay is actually writing her doctoral dissertation. She's at um, uh, she's at in uh, U University of North Texas right now. And she's writing okay, her dissertation yeah. on me and my music. So it's, it's Ooh, kind of amazing. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's it, yeah. Just to have something written about you is really, I mean, it's very uh, disorienting in a kind of wonderful way. Sure. But um, yeah, so she was the first one who commissioned it. And, and I wrote even another piece for her after that as a, as a wedding gift for her. So Lindsay and I have worked together um, a lot after that. And of course, you know, the connection came through, um, I did my master's at Yale and someone from there went to Mount Holyoke to work and then knew me and knew her. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So we're going to listen to this right now. Who is, uh, is, is the Mount Holyoke uh, ensemble performing it? I think it is. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is Tutarana.
let's talk about Jula Jule. And yes. this piece is for violin and piano. This piece was commissioned by uh, Muse. And what is that organization and how did you, how, how did they find you or you find them? Yeah, so this was um, actually a, a, a composer who had gone to Juilliard um, the year after me. She was a year younger than me. So she started this this um this organization called Muse, um, which is uh, short for Multicultural Sonic Evolution, I think. And so um, the project then, um, and I'm not, I'm not in close touch with them anymore. I wish I was, but I, um, I, I know that the, her project at that point was to have composers reflect on folk songs from different parts of the world and hopefully parts of the world that they themselves were from. And sure. so, yeah, that's, that's why I got called uh, to, to write the Indian one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that I, I was actually kind of wondering this when I, when I read that in the in the notes for this. Is that something that do you feel that you are being called on very often to to write, quote unquote, the Indian piece? Um, yeah. And that's actually kind of most of my career is to do that. And um, mm-hmm. it's funny because when I was younger, I feel like my teachers would always say stuff to me like, oh, you don't want to just be the one who's known for like writing the Indian thing, do you? You don't want to be mm-hmm. typecast in that way. And actually, the thing is, I mean, like, you know, I am I am an Indian person, you know, and I am sure, someone yeah. who cares so deeply about both cultures. You know, I grew up in America and I... um you know, I, I am Indian and I know so much about Hindustani music. So for me, you know, being bilingual musically doesn't necessarily mean that I'm only going to exist in the space between Indian and Western classical music, but it means that I can do anything in the spectrum, right? So on one side of the spectrum, I get called to write stuff, you know, also because I'm a woman or because I'm from California or because I have some connection to something that people mm-hmm. care about. And on the other side, I mean, I have string quartet arrangements of Bollywood songs and stuff like that because people want that too. So it's mm-hmm. like it's interesting because everyone who works with me works through me with me through a very specific lens of like we want you to represent your race or your culture in our organization. Um, but actually, you know, I do so much for so many different people. And I mean, I have to say it's a real gift to be the person who's asked to represent a country of, you know, over a billion people. A billion, right? yeah. <laughs> and it's like I'm the person who's being asked. So, so in a way, I, I think more than – I mean, it's a gift and it's also a huge responsibility because I feel mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm doing justice to Indian classical music, that I'm doing justice to the culture and that, you know, I'm really also going back and, um, you know, getting as much information as I can from the Indian side to make sure that I'm, I'm really representing people well. Right. And I think there there's also this thing where, you know, the majority, I would say the majority of your music, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of your music is presented in kind of a Western concert music context, yes? It is, and it has been, and I'm trying to actually um, make that change a little bit because I, I want to have more um, uh, performances for Indian audiences and in India, mm-hmm. because I mean, to me, if I'm just, you know, and I'm just the person who's teaching Western audiences about Indian classical music. I'm only doing half my job, right? The other half mm. of the job is the mm. other side. And so, I mean, I've been very consciously going to India and and doing the the other side of that work as well. That's really interesting. Um, with the, I think with the Western audiences, you know, there's probably this idea that if there's, 
I guess what I'm trying to say is if there's a drop of something else that isn't quote unquote Western, then it is completely that thing where I yeah. think you are really, you're really working hard to, to blend, you know, two, two, three, however many different ideas together to become something that is uniquely yours. Exactly. And I mean, also the thing is, uh, the other thing is that there are these days, I mean, you know, okay, like when Debussy heard Gamelon, right, there's not necessarily yes, going to be exactly. people who are from that culture that are uh, in the audience at his performances, right? Whereas for me, I mean, the Indian diaspora is huge. We're everywhere. We're all over the world. Mm -hmm. And who's to say that Indian people aren't going to be, you know, people who are trained in Indian music aren't going to be coming to these concerts that I'm, um, you know, presenting my music at. And I mean, I actually actively want that and actively work with presenters to get more Indian people to come and be part of the organizations that I work with. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, I remember this one time when um, I, I had taken my, my father, who he's not a musician, but he, you know, he knows what he likes and he knows, he certainly has listened to a lot of Indian music. And um, I took him to this concert where someone was playing this piece by a Western composer who had deconstructed this one phrase of... Um, and this ghazal by um, uh, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, who's a famous ghazal singer. And my dad was expecting to hear what he recognized as that phrase. And I immediately knew right. it wasn't going to be that. And my yeah. dad was actually like really upset about it, you know? And I thought mm -hmm. to myself, like, there's a, there's space for that, but I don't want to be the person who does that because I want to be the person where both Indians and Westerners can completely see themselves in my music. Mm -hmm. So the this piece that uh, we're talking about, Jula Jule, it was the commission had you, you know, considering f folk songs from India. Where did those folk songs ultimately come from for you? Well, they ultimately came from my own family, which is kind of the way that folk songs are passed down. And, um, you know, I looked at so many different folk songs and ultimately thought, you know, the ones that really resonate with me personally are my own family's folk songs. And, you know, I myself come from this really interesting family because within America, I'm just considered Indian. But in India, I'm like the equivalent of if my dad was from Alabama and my mom was from Hawaii, like that would be who I oh, am wow. in India. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. so basically my mom is from this, she's Catholic and from, she's from this part of India that was colonized by Portugal, um, called Goa. And so there's that side of my family. And then there's, um, the, the Muslim side of my family, which is from a, a city in Gujarat called Surat. And so, um, so both of my sides of my family are quite different from one another and um, kind of blending these two folk songs from my grandfather and my grandmother was essentially kind of bringing together my own family's uh, history. I was reading um, kind of your notes about this piece and the we're actually going to be able to listen to both of the, uh, you know, little snippets of these folk songs. And the one that we're going to listen to first is actually by your maternal grandfather, and we're going to hear him singing it, yeah. but you've never met him. I've never met him. And this is actually what's so interesting is that on my mom's side, I am by far the youngest grandchild. So the next grandchild is 13 years older than me. So I am the only one who really hasn't met him. But also, strangely, he was a really individual person who had very kind of specific interests. And I mean, I, I knew a bit about him growing up, but I mean, it's not like I really knew him well or, you know, we talked mm -hmm. about him all the time. But my mom kind of observed that as I grew older and older, I would take up these very specific interests that he had also taken up. And so, mm -hmm. you know, throughout my life, it's like I've I've fulfilled that role of my grandfather and I feel very close to him, even though I, I have never known him. 
So, you know, kind of reading about reading about this, it got it got me remembering um, that I I have a very similar situation. I've ne- I actually oh. never met either of my grandfathers. Both of them died before I was born. And it made me pull out this this old recording of songs that I wrote while I was in high school. And one of them was about my maternal grandfather. Oh, wow. And the the song is kind of ultimately wondering about like, what was he like? Wondering what would it have been like to know him? And, and to what extent is this kind of what this piece is for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a chance to kind of get close to him and to explore what it would have been like to really be his granddaughter, because in so many ways, you know, it's funny because I mean, if if uh, for people who are more religious, they might believe that like the soul of someone comes into the next person, and the generation mm-hmm. in their family. But for me, I mean, I think maybe it's even a scientific thing where like you're when a certain member of your family is lost, like everyone is kind of mourning their loss and looking for that same relationship with someone else. And then you almost come into the other side of that relationship right. as a younger person. And so uh-huh. whatever it is, you know, I, I, I've never quite been able to get my head around it, but, um, it was a way for me to just feel like I was close to him because he was also the musician in the family. You know, he was the one who mm-hmm. would, um, you know, have my mom and her siblings just sit in that they grew up, um, even though they're from India, they actually grew up in Kenya in the diaspora. And so they'd be mm. sitting on these hot, you know, Kenyan nights, just in the dark, listening to Beethoven on LPs, you know, and just having these moments of, so my mom always had this, this really, um, profound attachment to classical music because of her own father. And, you know, he, I mean, in Kenya, Mombasa, to get these things, you can imagine how intentional right. he was about his love for classical music. So, yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to that uh, that recording of your grandfather. What is this folk song called? It's called Akon Vina Andaro Re, and it means um, without um, without eyes, uh, everything remains dark. Akon Vina Andaro Re, Akon Vina Andaro Re. Sadaya mare anko vinano andaru Anko vinandaru re Sadaya mare anko vinano andaru Sansari sabandhi chori Juab charne jodi Sansaru sabandhu shodi Juabu channe jodi Vare avinashi avo avore Vare avinashi avo avore Sadaya mare anko vinanu andaru Ankovina andaru re Ankovina andaru re Sadaya mare Ankovina nu andaru The other source material is from your paternal grandmother so uh tell us about that song so that's actually um, very much the opposite relationship of my grandfather. My grandmother was truly my second mother because when I um, when I 
uh, was born, she moved from uh, Pakistan, where my dad's side of the family lived after partition. She moved from there to the U.S. and um, ha- lived with us for my entire life until, you know, I turned 18 years old and went off to college. And mm-hmm. so... Um, I grew up uh, bilingual, speaking Gujarati and English, and I, you know, she didn't speak any English, so I just spoke to her in Gujarati, and so um, she would sing me this this lullaby when I was really young, and my grandmother, unlike my my paternal grandfather, this is my maternal grandmother, sorry, sorry, my maternal grandfather, <laughs> let me do that again, so, so my grandmother, unlike my, um, maternal grandfather, um, was not, um, musical, uh, you know, she, she didn't have, had, didn't have much exposure to music, so actually, this is the only song that I think she ever sang me, or that I ever heard her sing, and so the, the words of the song, Jula Jule, Jula Jule, Rina Rani, Jula Jule, it just means back and forth, back and forth, Rina the Queen swings back and forth, um, that's that's, that's what it meant. And so she would just sing it to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's only when I when I grew up that I actually realized how how specifically Indian the songs were and could hear it through that Indian ear. But up until mm-hmm. that point, that was just a song that I loved that she would sing to me. Right. Um, and we're going to listen to this, but this is not your grandmother singing. This is you singing, correct? Yes. And, um, it's, it's so interesting because I just never thought to record my grandparents singing or speaking or doing anything. We didn't, you know, they died, um, in 2007 and 2009. This is my mm-hmm. dad's parents. And it was just before that era where we would always record things on our phones. Right, and so yeah. I, I truly miss, you know, not only being able to hear their voices, but also, you know, there, there's so much in perspective that I feel like I wasn't able to ask them before they passed away. Mm-hmm. And so I, I regret that, but, you know, I guess she is singing in a way through me at that point. So let's go ahead and listen to this one. Jula Julie, Jula Julie, Rina Raini, Jula Julie. It seems like the piano can be quite free in this piece. Um, does aleatory or structured improvisation ever come into play, or is this kind of just strictly written out? Um, so note-wise, it is strictly written out, but as far as wow. alignment goes, it's not at all. So, oh, um, okay. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because you wouldn't know it from hearing my music, but I was a huge, huge John Fa- John Cage fan for most of my life. And I, mm-hmm. I did, you know, kind of discovered his music when I was 18 and wanted to be rebellious and then just never gave up on, you know, understanding <laughs> him and his ideas. Um, because so much of his ideas around indeterminacy, improvisation, stuff like that, um, really resonated with me. And I think, you know, there's a way that these things connect to Eastern cultures and especially to Indian classical music, mm-hmm. especially that idea of improvisation. So for here, um, for this piece, I really wanted it to be, um, to feel like it was improvised. So, you know, the, the violin will have a phrase and the piano will have a phrase with a kind of a box at the end. That's like, you know, keep on repeating this until the violin catches up to you. Um, and so, Uh so, I mean, in a way, um, it's, you know, it's very free, but in a way it's also, um, terribly stressful for the violinist and pianist because there's no parts. (laughs) Everyone has to play off the score. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there've been so many transcriptions of this piece speaking of transcriptions you know there's transcription for oboe for trumpet there's one for clarinet i think there might be someone is doing it on flute this month and everyone is is somehow very attracted to this piece and everyone will always email me and be like okay i've gotten the score where are the parts and i'm like i'm so sorry Uh. to inform you that that is the part (laughs) (laughs) 
in your in your notes for this, you kind of mentioned trying to find a point of resonance with your home life and with your outside life, or yeah. or rather, in this case, your quote unquote India Indian life and your American life, right? Because yeah. it, with your with uh, your grandmother living with you and you speaking um, to her only in. Uh, in her language, yeah. you know, you have you have this very strict divide. Like the door is your divide. You know, okay, yeah. I'm in India now. Now I'm in America. So, you know, this this piece you were you were trying to find some reconciliation yeah. with those two worlds, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and in so many ways in those years, you know, I mean, now at this point, you know, I'm that piece was written, I think, in 2013. So we're five years out from it. But mm -hmm. at that point, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, around that time was when I was first starting to kind of like, for better or lack of a better term, like come out as an Indian person, you know, yeah. like, and I think, I mean, I, people would look at me and, and just make judgments about me, but I myself really didn't know what it meant to be Indian in the world that I lived in, in America, uh -huh. you know? And so, I mean, a lot of times growing up, people would be like, oh, we never felt that you were different from us. And we, you know, we always felt, I, I grew up going to school with mostly white people. And, um, I, I think I realized at that point that I was unconsciously like rending myself so much to be this outside version of myself that didn't get made fun of or didn't get bullied because I mm -hmm. was different in some way. And I think I, I began to see how much I was doing that even in my professional life and that, you know, it was just no longer okay for me anymore. And also, mm -hmm. you know, the world is kind of becoming more and more accepting of um, people from different places in the world. So I, I was kind of grappling with that. And what I would do, interestingly, is um, at the beginning of each of these performances, I would sing a little bit, you know, just sing the melodies or something for people. And um, I was surprised by how much people responded to just the sound of my voice singing these folk songs and how um, deeply they felt connected to it. And in a way, I felt like, you know, music is the way that I can bring people into my culture. Because, I mean, music in so many ways is like, it's not a zero zero-sum game in the sense that, you know, there's so much um, fear and there's so much xenophobia around different cultures because they, um, there's this idea that, okay, maybe our jobs are going to India. So, you know, we need to be worried that we're not going to be stable if we have a better relationship with India or, you know, I don't know. There are so many ways that um, it is a zero sum game. And I think music mm -hmm. is not one of them. Music is a place where we can all kind of come together and, and value the best things in one another. And so um, I began to realize that I actually had fallen into this career that was a perfect tool to begin to have these deeper conversations. That's wonderful. Um, well, I, I I have nothing to say to that. That's just great and, <laughs> and, and just a beautiful sentiment. So let's go ahead and listen to this piece now. Who are the performers on this recording? The performers are two of my good friends, Alyssa Chung, a violinist, and Paul Karakas, pianist, who is also an amazing composer, but he uh, plays this on piano. So this is Jula Jule.
Thank you.
And I think this segues just perfectly into the last piece. And this is this is kind of a pretty new piece for you. And the, yeah. this piece, this love between us, prayers for unity. Yeah. And uh, you've described it as an oratorio. And we're going to hear three movements from this piece. The uh, the third, the fourth, and the sixth movement, I believe, out of seven, correct? Yes, seven total. Okay. What is the instrumentation totally that we're going to hear? So it's a really interesting instrumentation. It's um, a choir, and specifically um, Yale Scola Cantorum, which uh, specializes in doing modern Baroque. Like they, they have uh, that kind of a, a specialization. Um, and then uh, there's a Baroque orchestra. Sorry, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but do you, do you mean that they specialize in modern music and Baroque, or they do Baroque music in a modern context? So I find that they they kind of do both because Baroque music is um, a kind of a finite body of work that has been composed, uh-huh. and so a lot of organizations I find that do Baroque music are also very interested on the as on the other side of the Common Practice era, right? So right. so um, yeah. they do do a lot of commissions, but then they also do a lot of um, early music. So it's kind of both. It's so funny to me how often those those two line up. Like yeah. uh, when I was um, in in my doctoral studies and even even in the master's studies, I was so attracted to modern music and Baroque, nothing in between. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it, and there's it, something just funny about... to me whenever those yeah. Yeah, and there's something just if you don't um if you're not into like um super intense dominant tonic relationships, you're kind of uh-huh. on either side of each of those things. So, like, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, so um, and also so I mean, so in any case, it's for this choir for the Baroque Orchestra Juilliard 415 and then a sitar and tabla player from India. And I mean, to continue that conversation about um the relationship between Baroque and modern, there's also such a relationship between the sound of Baroque instruments and the sound of Indian classical instruments, because mm-hmm. Indian instruments are also quite old. They have that kind of warmth and um, kind of buzziness about them that Baroque instruments have. Um, yeah. And then, you know, they also, they also interestingly have those idiosyncrasies where sometimes um, they, there's a note that they can't play, or there's a certain way you have to navigate through them that modern instruments have kind of smoothed over. So, I mean, when, when I began, began writing this commission, I mean, Baroque Orchestra was just what was given to me. But as I kept on working, I realized how fortuitous it was that it was written for a Baroque Orchestra. So since you're writing for tabla and sitar, were they working from Western notation? Or or basically, how did you approach those instruments for which I think Western notation kind of fails? I mean... Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, so whenever I'm writing music, and this, this goes, you know, for almost any music that I write, um, I don't necessarily start by thinking about what my musical ideas are and kind of how to realize certain, you know, musical forms. I first start thinking about who are the people in the room and what are their musical values? What are they good at? How do they see music? And how can I create a system where they can come together to make music where they feel that they're Everyone is at their point of strength, but maybe just has to take one step out from their point of strength to be Uh um, able to communicate with one another. And so Uh that's certainly what I started from here, because bear in mind, I mean... 
when you're working in cultural crossover, it's not specific like, okay, every Sithar player can do this or every Sithar player is right. able to, you know, it's, it's how much experience that person has had in crossing over. So for me, because the Sithar and Thubla player were people I didn't know. They're not people I've worked with before. And I thought, okay, they're coming from a very strict Indian background. How am I going to make them feel like they can really express themselves in the piece, but also that they can, they know where to fit in and, you know, all mm-hmm. of that. So, so basically what I ended ended up doing is just um, making sure that every single thing that I wrote for the Sitar and Thubla player worked in a context of the system that they could understand. So, uh-huh. you know, for instance, I would say I would, I would, um, at some point, if I wanted them to be able to really go for it and improvise, I would have like 32 measures, which is, it was very clear to them, like how, what the length was of that uh, specific area. And, you know, they would have some kind of music that would be able to kind of cue them out or whatever. And then I would say, okay, here's this rag. I want you to improvise in this rag for 32 avarthans, which is like the uh, rhythmic cycle. And so they would kind of know, and there'd be a way to explain it to them. So the question, and the real question is, how did this all come together? Because when you're listening to the piece, it feels like, you know, crazy that this thing even happened. And I mean, I will say that there were definitely a few sleepless nights where I was in complete panic because um, (laughs) the thing that happens for me, because I mean, I've been working in this uh, crossover space for almost a decade now and people know that I I do this kind of work. So I think sometimes people think like, oh, we're just going to, you know, put these people all in a room and, you know, Rena knows how to deal with it. Like she's got this. And and the thing is, is, I do, I do have it. Like I can make almost anything happen, but the the amount of kind of rehearsal time that's required on either side has to be really specific. And every time I work in a situation like this, I learn more about what people need. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. essentially what happened was that um, I knew that the Indian rehearsal technique is very different in that they kind of show up to the first rehearsal, they see if they can jump in, they figure out what's going on. So they don't practice and have their parts note perfect before they show up because that's just not the way that they work. And so I knew this and I I called the um, Sitar and Tabla player in India and I kind of said, hey, do you want me to help you go over your parts? And they were like, no, no, we totally got this. Like, we're, we're fine. And so I thought, okay, but let me do it the other way. So I called up um, the the choir and I said, hey, can I get about three rehearsals with these um, musicians before we put them with the main group because they, they might panic when they see what's going on. And they were like, oh, sorry, we've already scheduled it. We don't, you know, we don't have the time for them to come in. We can maybe give you an hour before the first rehearsal. And so I was like, okay, you know, like this is what's going to happen. And I was the only one who knew that it was going to be this insane thing when we put, put them together. So what ends up happening is like, you know, the Indian musicians can only come yay far. The Western musicians can only come yay far. And everything that's in the middle is up for, is up to me to fill in. Right. So at that point, I was singing the sitar parts at the first rehearsal so that the sitar player could hear where he fit in and the conductor could hear where the sitar player fit in. And, you know, once they knew that, the most important uh, feature for them to be able to collaborate, and they did, I mean, they did a really beautiful job because... um, and that concert uh, that we're going to hear is actually the second performance of it. So it, I mean, it was right at the beginning of our tour. Yeah, um, right. They, they were totally able to collaborate because everyone was so open-minded and so willing to take that one step out of their own tradition, you know, and they had no pride about it. They were really, you know, there to make the piece work and there to, to work with one another and get to know one another. And to me, that's the, the most important thing about collaboration. I think that kind of speaks to what the the larger concept of this piece, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. talk to me about the text and and how the text gives us this this context for what you're trying to say with this piece. 
Yeah, so... You know, I wrote this piece, actually, I was working on it from August to December of 2016. So you can imagine, again, oh what was going God. on in our world <laughs> at that point yeah. was kind of this this whole cycle into the election, the nominations, the final election. And I mean, initially, I had really wanted to write this this piece to kind of do something that was pretty, that allowed people to kind of feel good. And I had initially had this idea of just doing something about light and darkness. And those are always really great musical things to find texts about. And then as I started to just kind of see the world falling apart around me as I was writing this piece, I thought, you know, I really need to stop softballing things because I think my, um, my, uh, aesthetic as an artist thus far has tried to be like, hey, I'm not scary. Like, even though I don't look like most composers, like, you know, you can still trust me. I can still write music. Like, that right. that was what I think I was going for before. <laughs> and then once this happened, I was like, you know, I have a unique voice. I'm in a unique position and my music is in front of a lot of people and I don't want to take that for granted. You know, the amount of time, if you just think of everyone in the audience, they're all sitting there listening to your piece for X number of minutes. I mean, that's days of listening that's happening. And so mm -hmm. you have this enormous platform. And for me, I felt that if I didn't use it to say something that I really believed in and that I thought was important to say, like, what was the point of, of doing this? So... So I kind of revamped my whole thing and decided basically to go through the seven, seven of the most major Indian religious traditions. And there are many in India, but th those were the seven um, that I, that I picked and um, went specifically into their canonical texts to talk about uh, to find the places where they talked about um, unity and like being good to each other. And um, so I set the texts both in the vernacular and in English so that people could hear the actual text and then also be able to understand it at the same time. And also for singers who, you know, are um, singing both these texts together, um, they're, um, they're kind of immediately aware of what the meaning is. They're not just like memorizing a meaning and then singing right. syllables that they don't know. I wanted them to really feel it really deeply. And so, um, I mean, essentially the thesis statement of this piece is whatever religion you believe in, whatever you choose to follow, that's fine. You know, many religions are valid and important, but there's no place in any of these religions where it says it's okay to harm another person and that's fine. You know, these are the places right next to each other, side by side, where it's saying that you should be good to one another and you should treat each other with kindness and respect. So essentially, if you're using your religion to disrespect someone, you know, that's kind of on you. It's not your religion that's saying that. And the three... The three movements we will listen to. Um, yeah. What are the the specific uh, religious uh, texts you're pulling from for those movements? Yeah, so movement three is the movement on Catholicism, and I actually think that's a really interesting one because so for every for every single text that I found, obviously I had to go through all these these different venues avenues to get mm -hmm. it because you know most of the texts are originally in some Indian language um, or some Eastern language and um, I had to translate them into English or find English translations of them um, in this case I mean obviously the Bible was not originally in an Indian language um, but right. it is a, a big part of Indian culture especially in the state of Kerala which is uh, the southern one of the southernmost states in India and which is actually the Christian state of India and so mm -hmm. um so I decided to reverse translate it into Malayalam, which is their uh, language. And so 
I mean, every single translation story is, is such an interesting story because, you know, where, I mean, you don't just go to your neighborhood and Malayalam translator to, you know, you've got to kind of seek out these people. And so, right. um, you know, and I myself don't, don't speak Malayalam. So, um, mm-hmm. I was actually at, um, at lunch with, um, it was actually a new friend of mine. Now I've known her for a while, but it was the first time I was meeting her. She's a Western violinist, plays in the string quartet called the Lyris Quartet in Los Angeles. And they do a lot of new music and, are super, you know, like they're, they're, uh, doing like, like Lou Harrison and all this kind of stuff. They're really mm-hmm. in that scene. So she happens to be, um, from Kerala. And the minute she told me that, I was like, Oh my gosh, do you speak Malayalam? Because I need to. Yes. And she was like, she said, No, I don't, but my mom does. So literally her uh-huh. mom was the one who did this whole translation for me. And we went oh, back and great. forth, you know, so, so that was really interesting. And, and, and all this to say that, and one of the things I love about, you know, um, doing these things in English in the vernacular is that normally when people, um, learn just a few phrases of another language, I mean, it's usually one of two things, right? It's either that it's, um, they're learning, uh, how, where is the train station? Like, da, 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 mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or they're Very learning curse words, stuff. right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so those are the two main, uh, categories. And yeah. so I just yeah. like the idea that, especially in this, this movement, um, if someone is learning phrases in Malayalam, the phrase that they're going to know how to say is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the only thing they're going to know how to say in Malayalam, which to me is yeah. awesome. Like that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's movement three. Um, movement four is Zoroastrianism. And so that's actually practiced by, um, Parsis, which are a, a pretty small community within India, but they're actually one of the two most, um, influential communities in Western classical music. So Zubin Mehta is a Parsi, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I so wanted to include them in this piece that was about Indian and Western crossover because, I mean, right. especially even when we were in Bombay um, performing this at NCPA, there were... I mean, the audience was full of people who were Parsi, and I wanted them to feel like their religious tradition was really being valued in this piece. Um, so yeah, so that, I mean, again, it just, it took so many different people to get to a place where I could find someone who was well versed enough in this language called, um, what is it called? Pallavi. It's called Pallavi. And it's not the, the, I think like there's another language called Avasta or something, which is the language of the prayers. But this is just this ancient text that said uh, something that was along the lines of what I, I wanted it to say. So, um, and then, I mean, musically, the piece is also interesting because it's one of the few pieces that you could perform as an Indian classical musician with no knowledge about Western classical music. It is, it is actually like a Hindustani bandish in a very classical sense. So it was my first time okay. working in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, movement six is the Jain movement. Um, and so that is in the language um, Ardha Magadhi. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was another one. And what I think is kind of interesting about the Jain movement is that um, typically uh, J- Jainism is known for being, you know, the people who won't kill anything or like even if they step on an ant or even if they're like, you know, wiping bacteria from their forehead, like they, they're they're so um, intentional about not killing anything. And so right. a lot of their texts are just very peaceful and very, you know, just about, you know, kind of this, this tranquility. And I loved that this um, selection from the Jain uh, religion was actually very fiery and very like, don't do this yeah. thing. These are things you shouldn't be doing. I thought it was just a an interesting selection, but it just set so well and so beautifully that I wanted to use that. You said in the notes um, on your on your website that you you kind of keep thinking about the last line of the whole of the whole piece. 
which yeah. is concentrate on the essence, concentrate on the light. What does that mean for you and how does it affect your day-to-day life? Well, I mean, I actually think the ever since I've written that piece, I kind of try to live my life by that um that phrase because um i mean these days i think our dialogue breaks down so much when we're concentrating on the bad things in other people and um i'm not saying that i'm not acknowledging they aren't there i mean i feel like most of my life is um hearing about horrific things and trying to put out fires but i think you right. know i i try to uh, really consciously see um people's intentions and you know the the way that that people respond based on maybe how they've been hurting or you know to, to be able to kind of see people as humans first um and i think that translates i mean it's kind of easy to say but it translates into so many different areas you know and i, I mean i think i mean obviously the political ramifications are uh, you know i don't even need to go into that because everyone yeah. is aware of that but I even think like, for instance, with, um, people who are donors, you know, who, who are donating to, um, you know, chamber music projects or who would donate on Kickstarter or something, musicians tend to sometimes objectify donors and just look at them with like dollar signs in their eyes and think, this person has a lot of money. Why aren't they giving it to me? Whatever. And then to kind of really take a step back from that method of thinking and think like, these are humans who, who have resources, but also have deep loves and cares about things and vested interests in things. And how can I get to know this person as a person and really see if the project fit is right? for them instead of just right. kind of harassing them for money all the time, you know, and <laughs> I, you know, I, I think yeah. th- there's just ways to think about people where, where we humanize them deeply. Um, and especially, you know, even for me, um, you know, I, I usually pick a word of the year every year and I try to, um, do kind of a weekly check-in around it. And my word um, that year was compassion. And I was thinking a lot about, you know, how can I um, be compassionate, especially to the people who are the most difficult for me to be compassionate to? Um, and I think kind of a, a year of thinking around that um, is uh, has has brought me really far in my understanding of the world and has also helped me develop relationships with some of the most unlikely people who, you know, they're major, major issues that we don't agree on, but like yet we can still sure. respect one another as as humans so yeah what's your word of the year this year um support actually um i've been thinking a lot about um how just you know how much i sometimes don't ask for support in my own career how i always want to be the person who Mm. does things for for other people and and it's interesting that that i should be talking about this because just last week i had breakfast with jennifer higdon for the first time and you know she's someone who i've I mean, I, we've never had more than a few words of conversation. And I mean, she's someone who obviously is like just a hero of mine, both, I mean, for, for who she is as a person, but just her music is just amazing. You know, mm-hmm. you just listen to one measure of it and you're like, how is this so perfect? And so, <laughs> so it's just like, you know, and so to even be able to, to talk to her w- was great. But I also felt just that Jennifer so deeply understands how to support people and how to ask the right questions to, to say like, hey, you're doing this thing you're doing a good job how can i like help you get to the next level what do you need from me you know and i i mm-hmm. i mean to me that was life changing and i think you know uh, before I would have tried to find a way to be like, I don't know. I'm okay. I don't need anything, whatever. And th- this, th- after that conversation, I really started thinking like, okay, how can I, um, how can I accept this, this love that she's, she's, uh, you know, sending my way. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to this piece right now. And as I said, we're going to hear the third, fourth and sixth movements of this and remind us again, who the ensemble and the performers are. 
Sure. So it's Yale Schola Cantorum, Juilliard 415. And then the sitar player is, um, Rabindra Goswami. And the, the, um, tabla player is Ramu Pandit. And it's, um, it is, uh, uh, conducted by David Hill. And this is This Love Between Us Prayers for Unity.
So we've uh, we're to the last question, the sure. question that I always ask the um, all the artists and composers who come on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Yeah, so I think interestingly, if I really look back on it, um, music was always the toughest thing for me in a certain way. It was like, in a way, um, the, you know, the place that I went to when I wanted to be alone and to, to really, uh, you know, be in my own thoughts, but it was also the hardest thing for me to do. You know, I was someone who mm, like yeah. was really good at, 
at school, you know, I was like the valedictorian in my graduating class. I was, you know, that person. I was good at math. I was, you know, good at writing, whatever. And there was something about me that's just very addicted to challenge. And I yeah. think um, for, for, for music, you know, I didn't start out being a composer. I started out wanting to be a pianist. And I mean, I'm so glad I'm not a pianist because I would have been a disaster. <laughs> um, but, um, but I remember like I and be preparing and preparing for these competitions. And then I would get to a certain point and I'd have a memory slip and I'd panic. And, but there was a point in me that where I really felt like I knew that I had a good understanding of music. Like I knew I could hear a lot of things. And I, I had the sense that I, I really understood music deeply, but I, I really didn't like performing it. And so, um, that's kind of how I, I found composition and it, it ended up being, you know, exactly right for me. But in a way, I mean, I felt almost like kind of back-ended into the career because I was applying to conservatories for piano. And then I also just like decided to put in some applications for composition, really not having much. I mean, I'd written just a few pieces and I mean, I ended up doing my undergrad at Juilliard. And so when Juilliard called, I was like, okay, I guess if they see something in me, I guess maybe I'm a composer now, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and here I am like whatever, however, 15, 16 years later. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, So before we go, can you tell everyone uh, where they can find your music and where they can connect with you online? Sure. So um, you can find me on my website, which is just renaesmail.com. I'm the only Rena Esmail in the world that I know of. If you're another Rena Esmail out there, please uh, tell me. Really? because Yeah. Well, because it's it's interesting. You know, I was just in India and I have um, a my my first name is Hindu and my last name is Muslim and so you wouldn't typically find it's oh, like oh okay yeah yeah so it's like if you if your name was like Lakshmi Smith or something that's what my name sounds like <laughs> right? Right, right, right so okay. Yeah, so um, you can find me on my website. Um, I have a Instagram, Brina Esmail Composer, um, and I have a Twitter, but I mostly only tweet like when I'm traveling, like weird things about traveling. So if you're interested in that, it's hey, it's Rena. So <laughs> awesome! Thank you yeah. so much for doing this, Rena. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.